Scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 12, 26 through 29. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but not now he has promised. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Someone once said, it doesn't matter how slowly you run, so long as you don't stop. As many of us know, running the race as a follower of Christ can be difficult. There's always unexpected obstacles to overcome and unwanted pain to manage. It's easy to stop. But scripture reassures us that any obstacle or pain we face pales in comparison to what awaits us at the finish line. It's not about getting there first. It's about running with purpose and with peace. The end of Hebrews tells us how to do that, how to keep on running life's amazing race to victory. Hebrews chapter 12 will be our text today. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to Hebrews 12 if you want to follow along. It's nice sometimes to have the scriptures in front of you so you can make the connections and maybe take some notes. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. As you just saw from the intro video, we are in a sermon series called The Amazing Race. We are running a race. That is a great metaphor, a very biblical metaphor for what we are doing as followers of Jesus. After first service, uh, one of the ladies at church said to me, are you tired of running? <laughs> I think what she meant was, are you kind of tired of using that metaphor and being in the sermon series? And I took it the best way possible. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is good. We're moving along. We're almost done with this series. But yeah, it's, uh, it's the nature of running, right? You get tired. That is just the nature of running, and that is the nature of being a disciple of Christ in this world is sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you feel like stopping. Sometimes you want to quit. And that's what the end of Hebrews is all about. Don't quit. Keep running. For these Jewish Christians in the first century, don't go back to Judaism. What you have in Christ is so much better. Our circumstances are different today, but the message is the same. Keep running. Don't stop don't quit if you have lived in Oklahoma very long central Oklahoma then you probably remember a few years ago when we had earthquakes remember that earthquakes were fairly common yeah just in case tornadoes and and mighty rushing winds and ice storms and blazing heat isn't enough we added earthquakes to the mix just to make it more interesting I remember one day I was at home, and, and maybe you remember this day if you were around here. I was at home, and it started rumbling. And I thought, okay, it's just another little earthquake. But it kept rumbling. And suddenly, pictures were falling off the wall, and things were tumbling off the shelves. And I thought, whoa, this could be the big one. This isn't just, this isn't just a minor little earthquake. This is substantial. And I didn't know what to do. I know what to do when there's a tornado, you turn on the TV to your favorite meteorologist and then you go out the front door and you look and see what you can see, right? I know what to do when there's a tornado. I have no idea what to do when there's an earthquake. I didn't know. Do you go to an inner room? Do you stop, drop, and roll? I didn't know what to do. So I just sort of stood there like a surfer on a surfboard trying to ride it out, right? Just ride the waves. And of course, after a couple of well, probably was seconds, it felt like minutes, but after a few seconds, it was all over and everything was fine. 
Of course, that's not always the case when there's an earthquake, is it? In our country, we have had some devastating, some destructive, some deadly earthquakes in December of 1811, right at the point where several states come together, Missouri, Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, there was a massive 8.0 magnitude earthquake, and it did all kinds of damage to the to the ground luckily there wasn't a lot of structures in that rural area there weren't a lot of people in that area so actually only one person lost their life thankfully but the shaking of this earthquake went on so far that people said it was ringing church bells in Boston which is like 1500 miles away it changed the landscape it lifted up so much dirt and so much earth in one area that eyewitnesses said it looked like the Mississippi River was flowing upstream. That is quite a force, isn't it? But as I said, only one person passed away, and so that's good, and that's unfortunately not always the case. Almost a hundred years later, when that famous earthquake hit San Francisco, 3,000 people lost their lives. And I tell you about that because I think earthquake is a good reminder it's a good symbol it's a good reminder to us that our world is in fact broken that beneath our feet this soil this earth on which we stand where we live it is fractured it is flawed we know that but things like earthquakes natural disasters they remind us in a physical way that our world isn't as it should be Of course, we live out in the other ways, the emotional, the spiritual, the relational ways that things aren't as they should be. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, he said that we know that all of creation, the whole creation has been groaning, has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That imagery really does stand out, doesn't it? That this world that we live in is is groaning and this anticipatory sounds and pains that something better must be coming something better must be on the horizon we look around and we see so much pain so much injustice so much oppression so much evil and we know there's got to be something better but it's not just a matter of looking around we look at our own lives some of you know what it's like to have the ground beneath your feet shift move sometimes even give way. You don't just hear the groans of creation, you feel them. You feel them in your gut. Maybe you know what it's like for everything in one moment to be calm and peaceful and all is good, and then the very next moment, everything is turned upside down. And everything is tumbling down into this heap of hurt and heartache. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you can even pinpoint the moment. You remember. And there are triggers that take you back. Certain smells, certain sounds, certain songs, certain people, voices. They take you back to that moment. Maybe it was a doctor's office. Maybe it was a hospital room. You heard the word cancer. You heard the word tumor. You heard the word Alzheimer's or dementia. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Maybe unexpected maybe somewhat expected, but it was still so painful and still is painful, and it it gave you a, a new normal. It changed the course of your life. 
Maybe for some of you, it was relational. Maybe you have found yourself picking up the pieces of a broken marriage or strained family or a relationship that you thought was going somewhere into the future and you were excited about it and now all of a sudden it's gone. Maybe a friendship, maybe a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a season of your life that you entered into not knowing what was coming, but it's just one of those seasons where nothing seemed to work out. Everything seemed to go wrong. Just things began to pile on top of the other and the the ground beneath you began to give way. For some, maybe it's more closely connected to your faith. Maybe during those seasons or during those times, you have lifted up prayers to heaven, but they just seem to hit a wall. They seem to go unheard. Or maybe you have doubts, doubts that you wrestle with, that you can't get your mind past and you can't find answers to your questions as you look around this world and you see so much evil and so much darkness. You're trying to make sense of it. For some, maybe it's the isolation you feel being a person of faith living in a culture of unfaithfulness or an office of unfaithfulness or a company or a family or a social group. You see, for many of us, the circumstances are probably different, and yet our lives bear witness to the fact that there are fractures and unseen fault lines below the surface. If only there was something to anchor into if only there were solid ground on which to stand. If, if only there was something that we could say, yes, I can find strength and refuge in this. You see, that's the situation that the first recipients of this book, this sermon, this letter, Hebrews, were facing. It's called Hebrews because the people it was originally written to were Jewish Christians. And they are facing all kinds of hardship, persecution. They are trying to go against the grain of culture by following Jesus. Culture said you could be in the Roman Empire and worship the pagan gods and all of their heroes, or you could be okay with Judaism. We will allow that. But this Christianity thing is something new, and it's different, and it stands out. And it wasn't just that they didn't tolerate it. It was that they had, they had strong feelings of opposition. And so Christians were mistreated. They were persecuted. Some of their Jewish friends were trying to pull them back to Judaism. Life was difficult. The ground beneath them was moving. They had been hurt, and they had seen others hurt. But with Jesus, the temptation to go back just it doesn't make sense. As their Jewish friends tried to pull them back to Judaism, they had to make a choice. Do we go back or do we press forward with Jesus? You see, discipleship is not about going back. It is about following Jesus wherever he takes you. It's about stepping out in faith and trusting that he knows what is best. That's the decision that they had to make daily. That's the same decision that you have to make that I have to make. Those Christians in that day needed encouragement. They needed a word of hope. Maybe today you need encouragement. Maybe you need a word of hope. I want you to listen to the message. More than that, I want you to see the text. See God speaking 
to you and listen to God speaking to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. The writer takes us to a mountain to encounter God. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Do you see the mood there of that mountain? Now, it's not mentioned in the text, but clearly the writer is talking about Mount Sinai. And these Jewish Christians, they know their history. They know their Hebrew Bible. They know what happened at Mount Sinai. That's where God visited them. That's where Moses encountered God on behalf of the people and received the law. That's where God's people encountered God. And it was, in a word, terrifying. Did you see that word? The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. When you walk into the presence of a holy God, there is no other response than fear because you recognize how unholy you are. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 19, when God gave Moses some very specific instructions about approaching the mountain of God. He said, you need to tell the people to cleanse themselves, consecrate themselves for two days before I descend on this mountain. And then God tells Moses to warn everyone, don't approach the mountain, don't step foot on the mountain, don't come near the mountain until you hear the ram's horn sound this long blast that signifies, okay, now it's time. If you approach the mountain before then, including any animal that happens to wander into that area, you know what's going to happen? They must be put to death. That's how serious this is. They must be put to death, but don't kill them in a personal way so as to defile yourself. You stone them or you kill them with arrows. Sounds a little over the top, doesn't it? I mean, this is serious. But remember, all of these regulations, they speak to this chasm that exists between a holy and a perfect God and unholy and imperfect people. That's why those regulations are in place. That's why you have fear as you approach a holy God because you see how holy he is and how unholy you are. You see, that is our greatest dilemma. That is humankind's greatest dilemma. How can we coexist with the holy God in all of our unholiness? And you thought your greatest dilemma was not finding a close parking spot at the store. Yeah. So Exodus 19 is what, what is referenced here. Go back to Exodus 19. I want, you to, I want you to feel, I want you to see. Use your senses to experience this. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. 
The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. If you use your senses to imagine this scene, what are you seeing? What are you, what are you smelling? What are you hearing? What are you feeling? There's, there's smoke, there's fire, the ground beneath you is, is trembling, it's shaking, it's rumbling. Finally, there's this long blast from a horn, and then Moses speaks, you hear Moses, and then the word of the Lord. How do you think the people felt as they approached the mountain of God? How do you think those first few guys after Moses felt as they crossed that, that barrier, that line where you were actually on the mountain? Do you think they said, okay, Moses, you go ahead and make sure it's safe first? Do you think they just kind of like put their foot over and dipped a toe in like you would do in a cold swimming pool to see how cold the water is? You know, just waiting for lightning to strike them or an arrow in the back? They were terrified. You see, there is friction when a holy God encounters an unholy people. It is felt not just in their lives, it is symbolized by the earth, the ground shaking beneath them. They're afraid just as you and I would be afraid. And so the writer taps into this, this emotion, he taps into this picture, this scene that is undoubtedly seared in the collective memory of these Jewish Christians. They know all about it. And now that they have this picture in view, now that they're beginning to feel some of those emotions, the writer contrasts approaching God at Mount Sinai with approaching God at another mountain, Mount Zion. Back in our text, Hebrews 12, verse 22. Listen for the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's that word again, better. Throughout Hebrews, we see better. Jesus is better. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't give in to the culture. Jesus is better than anything else you can find. You see, he speaks a better word. So what is the writer saying there? He gave us this picture of Mount Sinai. There's trembling, there's fear, the ground is shaking. But he says, you aren't standing at that mountain. You are at a different mountain, Mount Zion. The phrase, you have come, it's used three different times there. It is perfect tense, which means you have already arrived there and will continue there. You see, the city that those heroes of faith in chapter 11 looked for and longed for, he says, you are there, and you will continue to be there, not only in this life, but into the next life. Zion was in Jerusalem, where the temple was, and the temple was where you went to encounter God. Now, you had to have a mediator, a high priest, who made sacrifices for you, but no longer is that needed. Why? Because he tells us, Jesus is the mediator that makes it possible for you to be with God. Jesus 
paves the way. He makes the way. He is the way. Verse 23 tells us, through his sacrifice, you have been made what? Do you remember what it said? You have been made perfect. That word means complete, whole, purified, holy. You are now in a state, in a condition, that you can actually enter into the presence of a holy and perfect God. Your sins have been removed. It's not that holiness no longer matters like it did for the people who approached God at Sinai. It's that holiness has been provided. Holiness has been taken care of through Jesus. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, he tells us this so plainly. He says, and by that, 10 verse 10, by that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You have been made holy. What you could not do on your own, Jesus did for you. The mountain was barricaded off. The door was locked. You had no access to God because your sins, your sins kept you from being in the presence of a holy God. Holiness cannot fellowship unholiness. And then Jesus comes along and he takes down the barricade and he unlocks the door and he says, here's the way, I am the way. And now you can be with God. You can be with God now and for all of eternity. The inspired author here, he goes on to say, Tune your ears to hear the voice of God. Just like they did at Sinai. Remember God spoke from the mountain. He says God still speaks. Now he speaks through his son. He speaks through his word. And you need to listen to what he has to say. Back in our text, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. You see, things are still shaking, and God is doing the shaking here. And he says, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to pick up the world, and I'm going to shake it until everything temporary, everything insignificant, everything that pulls at your allegiance, everything that we go to to find our identity and our happiness, all of those things that we know in our heart of hearts aren't permanent. All of those things will fall away. And the only thing that will remain is what is eternal. Imagine God picking up a a welcome mat or a rug and just shaking it. What's going to happen when you shake a rug? All the dust, all the dirt, all of that's going to begin to just fall out, isn't it? And the only thing that remains is what is permanent. That's what he says here. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Yes, this earth, this world, it shakes and it quakes because it was fractured in the fall. It groans as sin and sickness and sorrow wash over it. And we are victimized by that brokenness. But one day... All of that, all of that sin, all of that sickness, all of that sorrow, all of the things of the world that we put so much stock in, they'll be gone. And what will remain is what is unshakable, what is permanent, what is eternal, 
and that is God's kingdom. So look at verse 28. Therefore, he says all of that, and then he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you see what he's saying there? Remember, this, this is about encouragement to keep running the race. He's saying, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be in fear of a world that crumbles beneath your feet. You don't have to be in fear of judgment from a holy God. You don't have to live in fear of not being enough, not doing enough, not knowing enough. You say, well, wait a second. Doesn't it say right there that God is a consuming fire? Yes, the writer quotes Deuteronomy 4.24. God is a consuming fire. And this is one of those verses, I think, that people sometimes like to pluck out of its context. And they string together with some other passages taken out of context to piecemeal this, this faulty theology of fear. And they say things like, God is a consuming fire, so if you mess up, he's going to burn you. And sometimes it's not even people saying that. It's in our own minds thinking that. God's just up there waiting to throw a lightning bolt at me. Using this verse to incite fear is the very opposite of what this verse is put there to do. That is why context is so important. That is why overall theology, systematic theology, and the overall message is so important when we interpret Scripture. Fear is the very message he is opposing. He says, through Jesus... And what he has done through his sacrifice on your behalf, you don't have to be consumed by the fire. No longer do you have to try to be good enough. You see, that's what many of us try to do when we see that chasm between a holy God and our unholiness. Well, I just need to work harder. If I jump a little farther, maybe I can bridge that gap. God, maybe you could at least meet me halfway. I'll do my part. You do your part. You're not going to get there. There is nothing you can do. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough. You can't know enough scripture. You can't serve enough people. You can't come and sit in a pew enough times. It's not happening. But you don't have to. Because Jesus says, I am the way. I will bridge that gap for you. I will bring you into a fellowship with a holy God. But Jesus, don't you know, I am, I am I'm a sinner. I know. And I took care of that, he says. I took your sins on so that you could be with my Father. You see, fear is not the response God wants to elicit here. Gratitude is. That's what he says. He says that's a natural response. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, thankfulness, praise, worship, gratitude, relief, reverence. That's our response. Why? Because Jesus has set our feet on solid ground inside a kingdom that is unshakable, the kingdom of God. You see, it always goes back to the gospel. It must always go back to the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done, 
and what it means for you and me. This world will not defeat you. Whatever or whomever you consider to be your enemy, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's grief and pain, maybe it's worry, maybe it's relational problems, maybe it's sin or addiction, persecution, disease, maybe something else. None of those things or anything else can destroy you as long as you stay with Jesus. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 46, the earth may give way beneath me. The mountain may fall into the heart of the sea, but I will not fear. I take refuge. I find strength in the one who is ever-present. So respond accordingly. Be thankful. Be thankful that he has made you holy so that you can be with God. Worship and praise him for the love that he has for you, for the mercy he has shown you, for the grace that he gives you that says, you are my child. I mean, you know how it is, parents. When you see your children, you don't necessarily see all the things they do wrong. You see someone that you love dearly. So be thankful that God views you that way. And let that gratitude and thanksgiving not just come out in your worship, but in your life. Live with gratitude as you stand on this ground that is unshakable and share that good news with the world. You may remember back in 2010, a massive and devastating earthquake hit Port-au-Prince, the capital city of Haiti. Did massive damage there. Countless buildings collapsed. They aren't sure exactly how many people perished, but at least 100,000. Some counts have it up as much as 250,000 people. The already inferior infrastructure there just collapsed, basically. That night, with aftershocks still rolling through the ground, almost all the residents of the city and the surrounding region stayed outside. They were outside and they were torn with grief and fear. And one article sums it up this way. For the Western Hemisphere's poorest country, the earthquake that hit Haiti in January of 2010 was especially cruel. Despite this, it's hard to find a Haitian who doesn't profess a belief in a loving God. Wow. And so you know what many of the surviving citizens did in those terrible days after the earthquake? According to one author, Andy Crouch, he says, they sang. All the voices of the people of Haiti rose up in this collective voice of grief and lament of prayer and praise. They had lost virtually everything, but they did not lose hope. They did not lose their song. Let me read verse 28 again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's the response. To worship with thankfulness. To recognize who God is and what he has done through Jesus. To give you access to a holy God. So that when you approach the mountain of God, you don't have to be afraid. You can have confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus. That is good news. 
And that should send you on your way this week with hope, with a heart of gratitude. If we can help you today, we want to do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives are in a room called the parlor right behind me in this hallway. You can exit out any of these doors, make your way there. They'd be happy to encourage you, to pray for you, to visit with you. Or you can come down to the front and we'll try to encourage you and we'll certainly pray for you. Or maybe today you're ready to make that decision, make that commitment to Christ, to say, I believe Jesus is who he said he was and still is. And I want to give my life to him, to be buried with him in baptism, to be raised by him to live a new life. What happens at baptism, that's not something you do. That's something God does in you. He washes your sins away. He makes you holy. That's what we need most. If you want today to take advantage of that, to receive that, then come forward as we stand together and sing.